Hey, everybody. It is Wednesday, October 25th. You're listening to the Mo News Pasta podcast. Uh, I'm Moshe Wanunu. Jill, sorry, Freudian slip there. Today is World Pasta Day. Nom, 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 nom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all and the news. And then some. And then some. We read all the news. <laughs> we read between the lines so you don't have to. Some people told me earlier this week, Jill, they appreciated us going into the beginning of Scorpio season. And today, we're here to tell you that today is World Pasta Day. If you haven't figured out what you're going to have for dinner tonight, fun fact, people have been eating pasta since at least 5,000 BCE. So we're going on 7,000 years of pasta. This holiday, though, just about 30 years old, back in 1995, apparently 40 pasta producers gathered for the world's first World Pasta Congress. Now, that is a Congress I can get behind. Mosh, your favorite pasta? You know, I'm going through a bucatini phase right now, Jill. I had it over the weekend, actually. I don't even know what that is. It's like a thicker noodle. Got it. What's your favorite pasta noodle? I either like a nice angel hair or orzo pasta. I love orzo pasta. But it has to have just a ton of Parmesan cheese. That's my only requirement. You and my wife share that. There's never enough Parmesan in the world. <laughs> Ask for thirds and fourths from the waiter. Yes. Was, you know, like I guess there's enough of you out there where the waiters expect, like, oh, you're one of those who just needs constant Parmesan. Just leave it on the table. <laughs> <laughs> I actually want to take Alex at some point to, like, the home of Parmesan in Italy. I feel like that would be a fun place to go. It could be a great first post-baby trip. Um, But Mosh, with that, let's get to some headlines here. A hostage freed by Hamas speaking out what she says about where she was kept and how she was treated. Meanwhile, Gaza is about to run out of fuel, creating a catastrophic humanitarian situation. Plus the latest poll numbers on how Americans feel about the war in the Middle East. And if you've been on social media recently, you would know uh, there is just a huge divide when it comes to young people and how they view this conflict. Yeah, some numbers here are surprising, some not so surprising. And how to talk to your kids about the war. We have been getting a ton of questions about this, so we turn to an expert, psychotherapist Nero Feliciano, to get some of her advice. Now on U.S. politics, back to square one when it comes to who will be the next Speaker of the House. One thing both Republicans and Democrats can agree on, Meta or Facebook, bad for kids. And now 42 attorneys general are suing, saying that Facebook and Instagram are addictive and target children. An update on that story we told you about yesterday. Turns out the pilot who disrupted that flight, he said that he had taken psychedelic mushrooms. Jill, it's never been my experience that you take shrooms and want to bring down a plane, but, you know, to each their own. And we did promise a few days ago that we would do a Britney Spears deep dive. Today is the day. All of the big revelations from her new tell-all book. Oh, baby, baby. I was going to say, Moshe, this is where you should go. Give me, give me more. Oh, yeah. Wrong song. (laughs) Give me, give me more. That would have been much more apt. Okay, and Mosh has on the same history. Jill, today is all about the founding mothers, a founding mother of America, and a look at the founding mothers of 90s pop music. All right, let's start with a roundup of the latest headlines from the Middle East. First, we are hearing from one of the hostages who was released earlier this week, 85-year-old Yochaved Lifshitz. She said she was beaten by terrorists when she was abducted and then taken to Gaza on October 7th. But then she says that she was treated well during her two-week captivity in the Gaza Strip. Important to mention, her husband is still being held hostage. It isn't clear 
how honest she could be about her experience. But let's take a listen. Masses stormed our homes, hit people, they kidnapped many. They did not care about kidnapping elderly and children. It was extremely painful. They brought us to the entrance. When I laid on the motorcycle, I was on the side. And on the way, they beat me. They didn't break my limbs, but it was extremely painful. Jill, we should note that the town she's from, the kibbutz she's from, uh, they murdered or kidnapped a third of residents in that town. She watched her um, neighbors and people that you know she's known for years, her friends, murdered and kidnapped. Some of them also held along with her husband. So it's very important to note here as we listen to this hostage who was freed that you know she's 85 years old, was held in captivity in tunnels by terrorists, watched friends and family get murdered, and her husband is still, as you mentioned, being held by Hamas. So I think people should bear that in mind as they listen to her answers to the various questions. Yeah, and to that point, she describes a little bit of where she was held. We reached a big hall where some 25 kidnapped were concentrated. After two or three hours, they separated from my kibbutz, five people of near, and they put them in a separate room. Their guards were next to us with a paramedic and, and a doctor. We laid there on mattresses. They took care of the sanitary situation. A doctor came every two or three days to check on us. Moshe, there are still uh, more than 200 people being held hostage right now, including babies and the elderly. The thinking here is that if and when Israel launches its highly anticipated ground invasion, it will be a lot more difficult to get any of those hostages out. One scoop from journalist Barack Ravid from Axios, he said Israel is willing to delay a ground invasion of Gaza for a few days to allow talks on releasing a large number of the hostages that Hamas is holding there. There is a quote, both Israel and the Biden administration want to exhaust every effort to try and get hostages out of Gaza. If Hamas proposes a big package, of course, we will be ready to do things in return. That is according to a senior Israeli official. A big sticking point here seems to be fuel. We mentioned this yesterday. Numerous media outlets are reporting that Hamas wants fuel in exchange for releasing hostages. But at this point, Israel has said no, unless there are guarantees that the fuel will go to the Palestinians, to the hospitals, to the civilians, and not to Hamas to be used for firing more rockets onto Israel So far, they have fired about 7,000 since they launched that attack on October 7th. Moshe, you were part of a press briefing yesterday with NSC coordinator John Kirby. What did you learn? Yeah, so the White House is learning now in 2023 that they need to both brief the traditional media, but also digital media outlets. So was very lucky to be in a small group that got to ask questions of Kirby. 
on Tuesday afternoon. He spoke at length about U.S. strategy right now, basically laid out four items. uh, And this is something people should bear in mind right now. As far as the White House is concerned, they have four priorities. One, getting Israel the assistance they need, weapons. Right now, uh, there's enough money in appropriations to support Israel for a bit longer. He wouldn't say how long, but they will need Congress to pass that $14 billion in the coming weeks. So that's Israel's assistance. Number two, humanitarian assistance into Gaza. 60 trucks have gotten in over the past four days, though none on Tuesday. He said it's a war zone, it's hard, and they continue to have negotiations with Egypt and Israel, as well as dealing with Hamas. Number three, hostages, getting all the Americans out and everyone else out. He says there's less than 10 Americans right now. There was a question as to why we don't know the identities of all the Americans. He says that's on purpose. Uh, That's helping the negotiations. They want to keep stuff uh, very under the table, and they don't want people speaking out and circulating uh, the names. And number four, the big priority at the White House is deterring the widening of the conflict, deterring the Iranians from getting involved. Uh, He talked about already, as of this recording, more than a dozen attacks against U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria. And that's a big concern. And that's why the U.S. has increased its force presence in the region. A couple other items of note, as far as Kirby's concerned, he said, be skeptical of all the numbers coming out of Gaza. He says anything coming out of the the health ministry of Gaza in terms of the casualty counts, etc., are put out by Hamas. He said, take them with a grain of salt. Now, of course, he acknowledges there's civilian casualties happening, and the U.S. is very concerned about that and talking to the Israelis about ensuring they're limiting civilian casualties. He says right now they are. They believe they are. He said that you know allegations of genocide are inaccurate, that the Israelis are doing the best they can to just focus on Hamas. But again, you know, that's something that, you know, I found notable that, you know, as he speaks to the media on this. And he did reiterate that, you know, ultimately here, the U.S. is not dictating terms of the IDF as far as a ground invasion, but is trying to support them in every way possible. And the hostage negotiations, I got to ask Kirby, you know, why is Hamas releasing who they're releasing, these four people? And he said, I don't know. You know, we're dealing with the Qataris here. We want everybody home. No one should be being held in Gaza right now. So, you know, listen, they're only saying as much as they can say publicly, but I found that uh, pretty notable. We also did ask him to your previous conversation about the fuel. And he says, you know, the U.S. believes that fuel should be brought into Gaza. We asked him about the Israeli picture, satellite photos that were put out on Tuesday, showing that Hamas has a whole bunch of fuel uh, and is not giving it to the civilians. He said he can't confirm those pictures, but it does jive with what Hamas does, which is keep fuel, food, other aid for itself and not distribute it to the people. Okay, now to the situation on the ground in Gaza, that area, as we've been mentioning, expected to run out of fuel. If that happens, we're talking cars, ambulances, no longer being able to reach hospitals, generators and water pumping stations will will stop working. Aid workers tell Time magazine that humanitarian efforts on the ground would absolutely collapse. More than 60 aid trucks, as you just reported, carrying essential items like water, food and medicine have been allowed to pass the Rafa crossing from Egypt into Gaza. But experts say the deliveries are a drop in the bucket of what Gazans need. Now, in terms of casualties, as you mentioned, these numbers are coming from Hamas. Uh, Their numbers, they say 5,087 Palestinians have been killed since Israel started to launch airstrikes into Gaza. Uh, Many of those are children. And again, to be clear, um, the numbers are from Hamas and cannot be verified, but the situation on the ground in Gaza is clearly very, very dire. 
Yeah, especially as Hamas prioritizes its own weapons and uh, fighters and dealing with the hostages and not necessarily the two and a half million people that they govern um, in the territory. And so you've seen the U.S. now exert more and more pressure on Israel to let in as much aid as possible uh, to try to stave off this humanitarian crisis. It was interesting listening to that hostage where she talked about how she was eating relatively well. Like they, she was eating in the tunnels the same way that Hamas was eating. Yeah. She described eating cucumbers and white cheese uh, and not having any of the shortages uh, that other Palestinians are suffering from in Gaza. No uh, questions as far as uh, fuel shortages or any of the shortages that the rest of the people in the Palestinian territory are experiencing. Jill, one thing that got a lot of attention on the Instagram account on Tuesday was this polling out of Harvard that we posted looking at how Americans feel about the conflict. Now, these are numbers as of late last week, so just about two weeks into the war. So some of these numbers surprising, some not so surprising, but what was interesting is Harvard does an age breakdown, and this is what we learned. Asked about Israel and Hamas, who do Americans side with? 84% side with Israel, 16% side with Hamas. But then when it comes to age breakdown, overwhelming numbers across all age demographics for Israel, except for 18 to 24-year-olds, where 52% side with Israel and 48% side with Hamas. So effectively within the margin of error, a 50-50 split there among the Gen Z population. A third of Gen Zers say it was not a terror attack, whereas everyone else says that October 7th was a terror attack. A majority of Gen Zers say that the terror attack was justified on October 7th, the rest, everyone 25 and above in America, saying not justified. All ages support Israel eliminating Hamas before a ceasefire, except for 18 to 24-year-olds who want a ceasefire immediately. All age groups in the U.S. above 25 uh, support the Israeli blockade of Gaza, including uh, cutting fuel, water, food after the terror attack, especially given there's hostages there, except again for 18 to 24-year-olds. And then, interestingly, on whether to support Israel, Hamas, or sit this one out and not be involved, a majority of all age groups over 25 and above support standing with Israel, except for the 18 to 24-year-olds, Gen Zers again. A majority say, don't be involved, and the rest are split evenly between Hamas and Israel. Moshe, those findings are not remotely surprising for me uh, as somebody who is nonstop on social media and is a comment reader. Yeah, definitely jives with what you've been seeing in terms of protests on campuses. Yes, everything we've seen on college campuses um, in terms of people who are marching on the street. And like I said, I, I look at all of these posts on social media and I tend to read the comments below them. And so that's totally in line uh, with what I've seen. And additionally, I have been watching this really very scary rise in anti-Semitism for, I'd say, years now, um, way before this latest round of fighting. And numbers have shown that of all of the hatreds and and racisms in the world, anti-Semitism is the only one that is more prevalent amongst young people. It tends to be that young people are a little bit more understanding and open of people who are different from them. And that's why you see in most cases, when it comes to most types of hatred, it is the younger people where that is less prevalent, but it is the opposite when it comes to anti-Semitism. Yeah, you know, listen, I think there's a a whole bent when it comes to social justice movement and what you've seen in recent years uh, in terms of kind of this feeling that there's this binary world, there's aggressors and oppressors and the oppressed and especially on American campuses, you know, there's a projection that happens of what's happening in America 
on the world, despite the complexity of the things that, you know, in the world, you can't simplify things in the same way you can simplify them here. And that comes as we answer questions all the time on the Mo News Premium account on Instagram, especially as people say like, all right, so who's the indigenous person? Who's the aggressor here? And I'm like, well, when do you want to start? Um, what context do you want to provide? Because everything is different in this neck of the woods and we have to go back a couple thousand years or a couple hundred years or several decades here. And let me explain. And I think there's a need to, you know, look, people are looking for simplicity and this is not so simple. So anyway, found that interesting. And also found interesting Harvard didn't ask Israelis and Palestinians, asked Israel and Hamas, the two, you know, parties basically fighting this war, which, you know, I thought was um, insightful in terms of the observations that we got because they specifically made a point of asking about Hamas in this poll. All right. And we mentioned earlier, I spoke to a therapist uh, about how to talk to kids about all of this. And we're going to have a piece of that interview as part of the speed read. All right. Now to U.S. politics, back to square one. Republican Congressman Tom Emmer has dropped out of the race for speaker just hours after being nominated by the conference. Emmer had secured that nomination after five rounds of secret balloting, trying to break a deadlock that has paralyzed Congress for about three weeks now since a small group of Republicans ousted former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It appears that it was Donald Trump's attacks on Emmer that may have sealed the deal. Trump went on social media and called him a rhino, a Republican in name only. Jill, this was always a concern for Emmer that he wasn't MAGA enough for a certain portion of the party. Interestingly, in recent days, you know, he thought he was making peace with Trump and then Trump decided, nope, not into you either. One of the strikes against Emmer, he actually voted to certify the 2020 election for Joe Biden, something that, you know, Trump is still not happy with. In a post on True Social on Tuesday, Trump went after Ammer after House Republicans elected him as the latest nominee, writing that he would be a tragic mistake. So where are we at? They kicked out Kevin McCarthy. They tried Steve Scalise. Didn't get enough votes. They tried Jim Jordan. Couldn't get enough votes. They tried Tom Ammer. Couldn't even make it to the floor. He didn't even have enough votes, and he dropped out. We're nearly three weeks in here to basically a Congress that can't do anything because there is no Speaker of the House. So it's increasingly unclear whether any Republican can actually get the 217 votes needed to win the gavel. So Republicans went back to the drawing board Tuesday night to meet and decide on now a fourth candidate, a fourth nominee for speaker. He is Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana. He was able to garner 128 votes within the Republican conference. So just over half the issue what he will have, as his predecessors have, is will he get to 217 votes? He can only, like the others, afford to lose four Republicans. He does come from uh, congressional leadership. He is a longtime ally of Trump, very conservative. But can Mike Johnson do it? We could find out later today. Okay, we have plenty of news after the break, but for now, we want to talk about bowl and branch betting. We have talked about uh, on this podcast how we only really want to endorse things that we truly love. Well, bowl and branch betting and sheets is definitely one of those things. We've had them in my house for a few months now. We absolutely love them. Bowl and branch, good for all seasons, but particularly that summer of record heat. Well, it was definitely a bit easier because bowl and branch sheets are really soft and breathable. So that is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L and Branch Sheets. They are made with organic cotton and without some of the harsh chemicals that are used by other brands. Moshe, I never even realized how many companies use very harsh, potentially dangerous chemicals in their sheets. Yeah, it's something I learned as we learned more about Bowl and Branch. 
And these sheets really do get softer with every wash. So give you and your loved ones a better night's sleep this holiday season. Get 20% off your first order, plus free shipping when you use the promo code MONEWS at BolandBranch.com. That is BolandBranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com. The promo code is MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S. It is a limited time offer, and there are some exclusions. So see the site for details. Time now for the speed read from CNBC. 41 states and the District of Columbia are suing Meta. They say that features on the company's Facebook and Instagram platforms are addictive and harm kids. The bipartisan group of attorneys general allege that Meta designed products to keep young users on and coming back for more. So many different political backgrounds coming together flags a major legal challenge to Meta's business. States that have filed the suit include California, Colorado, Louisiana, Nebraska, New York, South Carolina, Washington, and Wisconsin. Tennessee's attorney general said, quote, this is a tough time in America. We have polarization, the likes of which we have not seen since the Civil War. And so for all of the attorneys general from both parties, people who frequently disagree very vocally and very publicly to all come together and to move in the same direction, I think that says something. The AGs claim Meta designed its algorithms to push children and teens into rabbit holes of toxic content. And more, the lawsuits allege features like likes and photo filters have negatively impacted teens' mental health. Meta, no stranger to regulatory scrutiny around kids. The company settled with the FTC in 2019 for $5 billion over privacy law violations. Earlier this year, the FTC argued that Meta violated the terms of that settlement and proposed new protections for children and teens, including prohibiting Meta from profiting from data it collects from users under 18. This federal suit touches on a similar theme, and it accuses Meta of violating the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act by collecting personal data on users under 13 without parental consent. So states are calling on Meta to end what they see as harmful practices. They also want to see penalties and restitution, uh, so some financial penalties from Meta. D.C. and the states here are also asking the court for relief to force the company to stop using certain features they contend have harmed young users. The Attorney General of New York contending that Meta's own internal research documents show its awareness that its products harm young users. That's something we've discussed on the pod before, that you know Meta was doing its own research and saying, ooh, this is what we're discovering. That's stuff that we heard from a whistleblower last year. One set of documents about Instagram's impact on teens found that one-third, 32% of teen girls, said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. Following the report, Instagram said it was working on ways to pull users away from dwelling on negative topics. Major changes to the app, though here in this lawsuit, have not been seen. Jill, I was at a um, meeting over at Meta several months ago in New York where they were rolling out all these new protections for kids and teens. So they were hyper-aware of the scrutiny they're getting here. And it's one of the reasons they, they're trying to be more restrictive. At the same time, they also argue that the responsibility is on the parents, too, to do more to protect their kids from certain elements of this. And Meta is not the only platform that the AGs are focused on here with addictive issues. Last year, another group of attorney generals said they were investigating TikTok over similar child online safety concerns. And so we'll see what comes of this. And this is a theme we've discussed here a number of times, which is regulators and government authorities for many years basically let social media do their thing and let them grow their thing. And now we're seeing the effect of it on society, on kids, etc. And so you're seeing the government basically play catch up on elements here. 
From the New York Times, an update to a story that we first reported yesterday. An off-duty Alaska Airlines pilot who tried to shut off the engines during a flight on Sunday told investigators that he thought he was having a nervous breakdown at the time and had consumed psychedelic mushrooms, according to court documents. In an interview with the police after he was taken into custody, the pilot Joseph Emerson said that he had not slept in 40 hours and had been depressed for about six months. The officer and Emerson, quote, talked about the use of psychedelic mushrooms, and Emerson said that it was his first time taking mushrooms. The complaint did not provide further details about when Emerson consumed the mushrooms or how much he took or in what way he consumed them. Emerson telling police, I did not feel okay. It seemed like the pilots weren't paying attention to what was going on. He also told the police, according to the complaint, quote, I pulled both emergency shutoff handles because I thought I was dreaming and I just wanted to wake up. Jill, if it gets even scarier, he was on this flight to go pilot another flight. He was in the jump seat here and he was set to fly people. Just a few hours later... Scary. He's been charged here with 83 counts of attempted murder, 83 counts of reckless endangerment, and one count of endangering an aircraft. Emerson, who uh, is from Pleasant Hill, California, has been an airline pilot for more than two decades. He was riding, as I said, in the jump seat in the cockpit of the Alaska Airlines jet. Now, pilots say it's common for them to ride in the cockpit jump seat while shuttling to and from work. At first, Emerson was apparently chatting casually with the two pilots in the cockpit, talking about different types of aircraft, etc. But then when the plane was about halfway on its trip to California, one of the pilots saw Emerson throw his headset across the cockpit and announce, I'm not okay. That doesn't sound great. The pilot then saw Emerson try to grab two red handles that cut off fuel to the engine. If Emerson had successfully pulled the engine shutoff handles down all the way, then it would have shut down the hydraulics and fuel to the engines, turning the aircraft into a glider within seconds, according to the complaint. Jill, I feel like they need more safety protocol after this. If, you know, it was would have been that easy to shut gas to the engines or some new protocol about pilots not doing shrooms or not riding in the cockpit jump seat. Still a wild story. It is a wild story, and I think it's a good reminder not to jump to conclusions because this is probably the last thing that we were expecting from this pilot when we were doing the story yesterday, that he was on shrooms and kind of just like freaking out. You know, the thinking was, was, you know, was this a a suicide mission, something like that? Uh, So just uh, as you always say to me and as you always say on the Instagram, take a beat. Let the facts come out. Yeah. And we'll be better off. Though this does, you know, reinforce, you know, the leading theory on that missing Malaysia jet, right? That we never found in the Indian Ocean. Because the assumption there was it was the pilot because they couldn't come up with another theory. And so I was thinking about that story today as we learned more details about this one. All of these years later, uh, that story and and just no conclusion for those poor families that are waiting for to have some type of closure. Right. They found some pieces of the plane on the east coast of Africa months and years later. So the sense is it did go down, but they don't know the why, the what, or the where. Though there is a Netflix documentary, Jill, that I've complained about before on this podcast that goes far too long. They created way too many episodes and theories. And the first theory probably makes the most sense, which is the pilot did something, took it into the Indian Ocean, and that was it. Because they have this other theory, Jill, on the Netflix doc where they're like, he secretly flew it into Russia and all the people are living somewhere. And they're like, okay, you know, I've seen Lost. 
it, no, it gets really wild when they think that somebody went below, <laughs> like it's below Radar the cabin. Radar over Afghanistan. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's some wild theories out there. Usually, the, the most obvious one is the right one. All right. As we mentioned earlier, we have been hearing from a ton of parents asking us for any sort of guidance or advice on how to talk to their kids about the war that's going on right now in the Middle East. Moshe and I are not experts, so I went to an expert, psychotherapist Nero Feliciano. She is the author of the book, This Book Won't Make You Happy. The top question that we got from parents was, what age is it appropriate to start talking to kids about what's going on? She says, if you have a child who is really young, four, five, six years old, and they are blissfully unaware of the situation, allow them to be blissfully unaware However, she says if a child is affected in some way, then it is good to talk to them about it. And what does that mean? She says even just if they are seeing heightened emotion at home or if they go to a place of worship where things are different now and there's a lot more security, for example. So here is how she says that you could approach it. This is a bit of our conversation. This is a hard situation um, intellectually, emotionally, mentally for adults to get their mind around, let alone kids. We need to make sure that we process our emotions before entering a conversation with the child. That conversation with the child is not a good forum for us to begin to process our own stuff. We have to be clear on what we're saying going into it. At four years old, what we want to do is have the information be very concrete, but low in detail. You can say things like, People across the world are trying to get food and shelter and they're helping each other right now because they are going through challenges. So very low in detail. Always it's good at that age to focus on the helpers, you know, focus on the helpers. Who is helping who? Because kids are always interested and encouraged by that. But with any conversation with a child, especially a child who may be impacted, you want to start with what they know. Is there anything that you've been hearing at school about things going on in the world? If you have, let's talk about it. Let's start with what they know, and then we can begin to figure out where the conversation needs to go from there. So kind of have a a starting point for what information they have, and then let them maybe ask you questions about it. Yes, that's right. And we want to do a lot of listening. We also don't need to give them information to questions they're not asking at that age. You know, we, we want to really focus on what their curiosity is or what they're seeing. Maybe they're seeing that people are really emotional at home. And that is something we want to address and say, and say, you know, there are people struggling across the world and it makes us feel sad as well. One of the things that I was reading, I think you actually sent it to me, uh, was about in terms of especially the young kids, is you want to make sure that they feel safe. Yes. What are some ways that you can do that while discussing a topic as heavy as war? No matter what we talk about, whether it's war or school violence or anything disturbing to a child, that should be one of our primary goals in the conversation, is to assure them of their safety. And part of assuring them of their safety is also reminding them of our role as parents. We're there to take care of them. We are here to talk to you. We're here to take care of you, and you are safe. Um, And even if that means you're safe here in our home, you're safe because you have your teachers at school. Assure them of their safety. Now, 
there are many parents who struggle with that in different situations, especially for kids going outside of the home. You know, we worry about their safety in different environments. But in that conversation, we want them to walk away knowing that we're there for them. And it's our job to keep them safe. Because they're always going to go back to, how does this impact me? It is something going to happen to me or people that I love. Okay, now let's get to some of the older kids, older elementary, middle school. What are ways that parents can talk to those kids? So we're having these conversations at home because three or four of my kids are middle school. And one thing I think is same thing. It's important to start with what they know. What are you hearing at school? Now, middle school and up know that there's a war going on. What are you hearing about the war? What are your friends saying about it? And also, very importantly, what are you seeing on social media? We've had very specific conversations with my kids about limiting social media and also vetting their resources. How do we get reliable information about what we're seeing? Um, talking to them about biases that we may be seeing coming from different sources. This is a really important time to educate kids who are older on how to get information that's reliable and also to recognize that there's going to be a lot of misinformation, especially as events are unfolding. So it's a lot, Mosh. This is something I, you know, I know you've been hearing a lot about. I've been talking to other parents about it. Like, what are you telling your kids? How should you approach this? So I think that Nero's advice is really solid there. And we have a lot more about that in our newsletter today. And Jill, I, I know we're hoping to put this conversation out as a separate edition where you'll get the, the full conversation with you and Nero. We should have that out in the next day or two. Okay, and from Variety, Britney Spears' tell-all, The Woman in Me, is finally here. In the 275-page memoir, Spears chronicles her journey through pop stardom and her highly publicized conservatorship battle. Without skimping on the details, the book is dedicated to her two sons, but the pop icon penned a special note to her fans, saying, you have my heart and gratitude forever. She credits her fans with giving her the strength in her darkest hours to fight for her freedom. She writes, I don't think people knew how much the, quote, free Britney movement meant to me, especially in the beginning. I was not okay, not at all. And the fact that my friends and my fans sensed what was happening and did all that for me, that is a debt I can never repay. If you stood up for me when I couldn't stand up for myself from the bottom of my heart, thank you. As for the biggest revelations from this gripping page turner, she talks a little bit about acting. She said during her first film, Crossroads, she inadvertently began method acting. She said it was like a cloud or something came over me and I just became this girl named Lucy. It took her months to break free of her character's persona. And I didn't realize this. Apparently, she was up for the lead role in The Notebook that eventually went to Rachel McAdams. So she said um, she was somewhat relieved when she didn't get it. She said, even though it would have been fun to reconnect with Ryan Gosling after our time on the Mickey Mouse Club, I'm glad I didn't do it. If I had, instead of working on my album In the Zone, I would have been acting like a 1940s heiress day and night. If you have seen the movie The Notebook, you get that. And I'm kind of glad that she didn't get it either because Rachel McAdams was great in that movie, Mosh. Jill, a lot of details here also on the conservatorship. Uh, she talks about uh, being, quote, ritually tortured as she felt like her body was public property. It's one of the reasons she says that she shaved her head in the salon in 07. She frames it as an FU to the beauty standards she felt forced to live up to as people leered at her body. American parents said I was destroying their children by wearing a crop top. Really, you know, you get a sense here in this honest portrayal of just 
what it was like to be this, you know, teen superstar where every move was scrutinized. So just, you know, it's it, it gives you a sense of why she is where she's at today, what she went through over these last two decades. Another piece of news. She says in the book that she had an abortion after becoming pregnant with Justin Timberlake's baby. Spears details the early days of her relationship with Timberlake from their first kiss on the Mickey Mouse Club to their iconic denim on denim looks from the 01 American Music Awards. She says things were not as perfect as they seemed. Uh, we've learned that since. There were a couple times in our relationship when I knew Justin had cheated on me. They were both very young at the time. And so when she became pregnant, she says it was a surprise. But for me, it wasn't a tragedy. She said that she wanted to have a family with Timberlake. But when he did not share her enthusiasm, she agreed to have an abortion. Spears goes on to describe the physical pain of that ordeal. And then that Timberlake went on to break up with her via text message while she was doing a music video at the time. So there's, there's a lot in here if you've been following the Britney Spears saga over these last couple of decades. A couple other little tidbits. She said that she had a two-week fling with Colin Farrell. She also said that her interview with Diane Sawyer, she called it a, quote, breaking point. That was in 2003. She said she was not told of any of the, quote, 100% embarrassing questions ahead of time. And she felt like she had been exploited, set up in front of the whole world. And she said she calls that interview a breaking point for me internally, musing that growing up on her own would have been a better way to heal than airing out her issues publicly. She said she had no choice, and it seemed like nobody really cared how I felt. And I do think that that is a good lesson for the media as well, as we're always in a rush to book the, the best get or whatnot. It's, it is important to remember that there are people too, especially young women, uh, who are going through a lot. You cringe now when you look at the way the media, you know, was dealing with young women in the 90s, 2000s. I mean, you can go farther back, too, uh, in terms of, you know, the criticism and the scrutiny of the bodies and, and some of the really inappropriate questions that were asked of the Paris Hiltons and the Lindsay Lohans and the Monica Lewinsky's and the Britney Spears's of the world as they were going through some really difficult uh, periods. And so, you know, hopefully now, you know, you won't look 20 years from now and feel the same way about the media questions the same way that you feel uh, when you watch back some of those interviews from 20 years ago. All right, now time for On This Day in History. On this day in 1764, a young Abigail Smith would marry a young lawyer from Braintree, Massachusetts, now Quincy, Massachusetts, named John Adams. Abigail Adams would become one of the matriarchs, uh, founding mothers, if you will, of America. Uh, she would be the both a wife of a president and the mother to a president. She shares that distinction with Barbara Bush. Jill, we know so much about her because they wrote these amazing letters um, as John Adams would travel and Abigail would take him to task at times, call him out at times. A fascinating relationship between those two. If you've read the Adams biography by David McCullough or the HBO uh, documentary version of it, it is depicted in there. Um, Jill, I'll just include this famous quote from one of Abigail's letters to John. She writes, I love to hear that you've declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies, she writes, capitalized, and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands, capitalized. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. Wise words. Yes, if we only would have listened to Abigail Adams for the last, I don't know, 300 years. <laughs> all right, fast forward to the 20th century. On this day in 1955, the first 
microwave ovens went on sale here in the U.S. They cost just over $800 back then. Jill, that is $9,000 in today's money. And I'll add this. Recently, Alex's grandmother, um, Elaine, who's uh, 88 years old, was going through her cookbooks uh, to pass along. And she had a cookbook exclusively on how to make dinners with your microwave, (laughs) going back several decades. That was literally a cookbook that was very popular several decades ago, (laughs) being like, all the meals you can make using your microwave. What were the instructions? I feel like it's... (laughs) Basically, like, here's prep this (laughs) thing. Even I know how to make food in the microwave. Prep this item, mix it with uh, item B, throw it in the microwave for 10 minutes. Prep item C and throw it in the microwave for 15 minutes. Throw it in the microwave for five minutes. I mean, that was basically it. She should hold on to that. Oh, we have it. It's amazing. So here's the first appearance of the Rolling Stones. On this day in 1964, the British rock band, you might have heard of them, the Rolling Stones, made their first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. They would go on to make multiple appearances. Jill, they are still performing nearly 60 years later. On this day in 1986, Bon Jovi hits number one with the Slippery When Wet album. You might recognize it for a number of the hits, including Living on a Prayer. It has been certified platinum more than 12 times. It's one of the 100 best-selling albums of all time. And on this day in 1997, the Spice Girls went to number one on the UK singles chart with Spice Up Your Life. The song's success made them the first group to debut at the top of the chart four times in a row. Jill, the Spice Girls really owned those late 90s. They did. Any guesses which Spice Girl I was called? So hold on. So there was Sporty Spice, Scary Spice, Baby Spice, Posh Spice, and Ginger Spice. You were sort of an athlete. Were you Sporty Spice? (laughs) Exactly. I got it. None of my friends called me Sporty Spice, but a few years later in life when I was running marathons, a few producers where I worked used to call me Sporty Spice. There you have it. That was a thing back then. It was like, which Sex in the City character are you and which Spice Girl are you? It was a short moment in time, listeners. <laughs> oh, the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> All right. A big thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. And thanks to all of you joining Mo News Premium over on the Instagram account. Uh, we have a special episode also on the Members Only Podcast. It's an interview with Rana Faruhar. If you can't get enough of geopolitics and international affairs right now, well, guess what? We have another hour available to you over on the Members Only <laughs> Podcast. Uh, she has a new book out called Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. We talk about globalization and sort of its rise and fall. The post-World War II world, peak globalization, how we all sort of started to realize in the past 20 years that it's created this huge income disparity globally. Uh, there's been huge pushback. MAGA, you know, putting the country first. You're seeing that sort of movement happening here, also across the world. We talk about its impact, you know, where it could be a bad thing, where it could be a good thing, uh, and the correction happening to globalization. And we talk at length about China. So you can listen to that over on the Mo News Premium Members podcast right now. As always, light reading recommendations <laughs> for Mosh, light listening recommendations. It's 300 pages about <laughs> globalization. What are you going to be reading this weekend? I will have a chick lit recommendation, <laughs> I promise, uh, for everyone 
who needs a little bit of a break. But I will listen to the pod. I think the podcast is a great way to understand the arguments if you're not necessarily ready to dive into a, a 325. Yeah, if book. you don't want to do like a whole chapter on like the World Trade Organization, like I'll ask a question. She answers it. Jill, I, I've done, I probably am backed up here about in six interviews about books. So if you want to read some of the books coming up, you might be interested in them. Uh, otherwise, we have the podcast interviews. We have a whole bunch coming up on the uh, premium pod in the coming weeks. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.